Wednesday Live, I'm Graham Lynch. The big news of the week is, of course, the US election. Like it or not, the US political environment is a big deal, even for those of us in the faraway Australian telecom sector, because of the particularly aggressive posture taken in recent years against China's involvement in the Western tech supply chain. We'll be catching up for an extended chat about this and the implications of the election, as well as the state of 5G in America, with New York-based telecom analyst Dave Burstein later in the show. It was also a big week for NBN, with its leading executives fronting for four hours to a federal parliamentary committee. We'll be talking to Rowan Pearce about what happened there shortly. But first of all, our chief editor, Simon Ducks, joins us to talk about the week that was. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. First up, Optus. Uh, they bought one of their, or in fact, their biggest MVNO, and they launched a new digital brand. Tell us all about it. That's right. So it was uh, obviously no great surprise that Optus would uh, step in and acquire Amasim. Uh, as you say, uh, 1.19 million subscribers. Uh, they've bought them for $250 million, and uh, they were the biggest reseller of Optus. And it was an interesting move, but uh, one that has actually caused a little bit of consternation uh, from some of the other uh, MVNOs in the market as well. And uh, what we're seeing essentially is that uh, all three uh, operators now have uh, low-cost brands, essentially. And to do that, one of the key things that Optus has also done is brought over a Singtel brand, which we managed to notice they'd uh, made the trademark for it in June. And uh, that's called Gomo. And uh, that is essentially a low-cost SIM-only brand that they're going to target uh, a fully digital type server. So all of the uh, customer service and interactions will be online. And uh, it'll be quite aggressively going after the so-called millennial market. Okay. Now, um, not everyone is happy about Optus buying in P&Os. Compete, which is the lobby representing some of the challenger telco brands, wants the ACCC to intervene uh, in this transaction and in the market generally. That's right. If you uh, look at some of the things that Michelle Lim, the uh, Telco Alliance's chair, uh, has said, it's essentially one thing that they can't say that we can leave this to the market because the market's not going to come out with the best competition outcome in the long term. And she actually told us that these uh, mobile operator sub-brands have the risk of not imposing the same level of competitive constraint as competitive MVNOs. So as far as she's concerned, she thinks this is a market that is actually getting less competition. And because of that, the regulator should step in and have a look. But of course, we went and had a chat to the ACCC. And uh, I think uh, they're still showing the war wounds a little bit uh, following uh, Vodafone and uh, the TPG uh, federal court case, because they essentially said to us that they're not looking to do a, a public review and to have a look back at the outcome of that particular court case. And specifically, they said our laws cannot prevent a lessening of competition, only a substantial lessening of competition. And the substantial word is the key thing here, which I don't think they're ready to actually test in court. Okay, now there might be a more genuine uh, case for complaint on on another story that you wrote about this week. And I I found it quite fascinating. You discovered that uh, private LTE operators in Australia are being forced to use unlicensed spectrum. 
That's right. Uh, we had a good chat with uh, a satellite specialist called Ursus, uh, who are doing a lot of uh, private LTE deployments as well. And what they uh, were talking about was some of these networks where essentially you're trying to get a contiguous bunch of spectrum to cover an entire area and then you find out there's a quilt work or patchwork if you like of various bits of licensed spectrum unlicensed spectrum so you can't essentially be able to put together a network solution so in the end they've gone to what they've called uh, band 46 which is the 5 gigahertz band and uh, they're essentially doing unlicensed spectrum um uh, networks for enterprises and these things can be picked up and moved all over Australia uh, which is quite quite interesting and neat. Now obviously they, these networks are not going to support your handsets and your tablets for that you're going to have to have licensed spectrum but when you're just looking at particular CPE put in a, an office and uh, setting up an enterprise network that you can hang a router off, you can hang off uh, other network equipment then suddenly this becomes quite a pervasive system. Mm, very 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 interesting. Thanks very much for joining us this week, Simon. Thanks again, Graham. Moving on, it's time for Rowan Pearce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hi, Graham. Uh, you had the pleasure of sitting in on four hours of a NBN hearing this week um, in Canberra. I, I believe it was uh, Stephen Rue, Gavin Williams and Catherine Dyer were, were served up to the parliamentarians. Um, and uh, they had quite a lot to say about what they were doing to plan for the next bushfire season. Yeah, as you know, I loved sitting through long committee hearings. Nothing pleases me more. And it feels kind of crazy, actually, that we're on the cusp of another bushfire season where it feels like the whole year has just passed in this giant blur. But um, since obviously since kind of like the Black Summer fires, we've had both the Bushfire Royal Commission and then also um, the New South Wales Inquiry into the bushfire, and both had some, paid some pretty significant attention to the issues around telco resilience. So, yeah, th- this came up at um, the NBN Inquiry, and NBN did give an outline of some of the work they've been doing. So that, that includes some of the kind of broader industry efforts around um, particularly, like, uh, improving collaboration with power companies to get a bit of a sense of when the grid's being de-energised and re-energised. But also, as part of the, telco, the government's telco resilience package, um, NBN's also rolling out more roadmaster trucks, which are fitted out with satellite connections and also... Um, uh, purchasing more flyover satellite kits. So it, it did sound like NBN's been putting quite a bit of work into um, this, including like they're working on pre-staging equipment in areas that they feel are susceptible to disasters like fires or cyclones, and also working on some of their internal processes. Um, one, one interesting thing that came up was that um, Gavin Williams actually mentioned that NBN is, is kind of... It sounded like a trial, uh, the role using... Um, what he described as hybrid power cubes, to which are basically combo solar and diesel generator backup for fixed wireless towers. The the other um, significant thing is that um, uh, Catherine gave an update on the replacing the fiber link to Malacuta, which was completely wiped out by the fire. So that was an aerial fiber link, and they're actually replacing with um, uh, trenched fiber, and so that's expected to be completed in the first half of next year. I guess one of the uh, other interesting things that happened at the hearing was NBN talking about its millimetre wave plans. Interesting in the sense that we've got some spectrum auctions coming up next year and uh, millimetre wave is first cab off the rank. 
Yeah, so we've known for a while that um, MBN Co is kind of interested in millimeter wave as a potential like upgrade path for fixed wireless. Um, they were granted some scientific licenses by um, ACMA earlier this year to do a few trials. So yeah, Gavin, um, Gavin, Gavin gave kind of what I thought was the most um, uh, clearest indication that MBN is serious about using millimeter wave because he said the trials had actually been pretty positive so far. Um, and we know from what they've said previously, they're looking at using it um, over distances of up to 10 kilometers. And I guess like people often talk about the problems with the propagation of like high frequency signals, but I guess NVN has that advantage where one thing, fixed wireless is obviously like tends to be on the kind of outskirts of metro areas. So there's less built up buildings, but also because they're not trying to provide a mobile service and they have fixed antennas on people's roofs, it makes it quite feasible for them to actually um, potentially use millimeter wave over longer distances. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when the 26 gig um, auction comes up in April. And uh, this week, NBN also bought the company that provides it with its business satellite services. Yeah, so actually, I mean, uh, I, I didn't think about this at the time when I was writing, but this is probably like uh, NBN Co's first acquisition, really. Um, just interesting. So they, they picked up Speedcast Managed Services, which was the um, Speedcast subsidiary, which is essentially set up to deliver NBN's uh, business satellite service. So it was actually only two years into the um, 10-year BSS contract, but um, obviously Speedcast's been having a few struggles. They entered Chapter 11 earlier this year um, in the face of some significant head, headwinds. So from NBN's point of view, I think it's probably like quite a um, neat solution to what could have been potentially a, a messy problem. And I guess it's interesting, too, that in, in general, actually, the satellite space is kind of quite fascinating at the moment because you do have, like, Speedcast and a number of other companies, including Australian companies, facing significant financial challenges. But at the same time, you have these very interesting movement in terms of, I guess, the Leosat space in particular with Starlink and that kind of thing. Cheers. As we were producing this podcast, the results of the US election were still up in the air. Joe Biden has the easiest path to victory, and remaining mail-in ballots are still being counted in key states such as Pennsylvania. They seem to be breaking his way. But Donald Trump has said that he may legally challenge some of the results. Either way, it may be some time before we know for sure who the next president will be. But one thing is for sure is that Donald Trump has had an outsized influence on the global telecom industry over the past four years. His campaign against Chinese involvement in the global 5G supply chain has been wildly successful, with some 40 countries following the US in restricting Huawei and ZTE access to their mobile markets. Well, joining me is the New York-based telecom writer and analyst, Dave Burstein, He is with Analysis Branch, and he's been doing this for 20 years or more. He knows his stuff. Hi, Dave. How are you? Well, I'm a heck of a lot better now than I was late last night. (laughs) Late last night, it looked like Trump was going to win, and you know my politics on that. Okay, fair Uh, fair enough. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But this morning, it looks like Biden is pulling it out, and it's now, and I've been watching the last few hours, it would take a miracle for Trump to actually come in. Even Murdoch's Fox News is putting the chances of Trump pulling this out at less than 10%. Right, okay. Uh, well, let's it assume ain't that, over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over, especially if um, some of these court cases drag on. 
Um, but let's assume for a minute that Joe Biden is going to win. Will we see a change in the domestic policy in the US in regards to uh, Chinese involvement in the supply chain? No. No. Okay. Why is that? <laughs> really, really simple answer. Uh, the Sinophobia in the US is extreme. Some of it is coming from the fear of Sino taking over in technology, which is very real fear, but that's not grounds to cut, try to cut off the world trade. But why it's not going to change under Biden, there are two reasons. The most important one is that many of the important Democrats, including Senator Schumer, who is the Senate majority, Senate minority leader, and Senator Warner, are seriously xenophobic, and in fact, they've been trying to be more anti-China than the Trump guys, maybe for political reasons. Politicians do things like that. But there's a lot of pressure inside Biden's own policy party to keep it that way. The second thing is that it's almost certain that the Republicans will keep a one or two vote majority in the Senate, which means that policy changes are going to have to go through the Senate and the Republican senators see hating China as a big thing. Actually, I'll give you a third reason. We're going to have another Senate election in 2022. Two-thirds of the seats coming up are Republicans. The Democrats, within the next week, looking at their not winning the Senate, are going to be concentrating on winning that. They're going to be very reluctant to give the Republicans an issue like being soft on China. So there may be some small changes at the margin, but Biden is going to be afraid to make a big change. His party doesn't want to make a change. The U.S. military, which has a very important role in in this, uh, is definitely trying to cut back China. Now, it turns out, in my opinion, that the trade war against China is not really a mistake, but we're going to lose. Because China, except for cell phone chips, can make just about everything without the United States at this point. And they're going to solve this. They're going to solve the cell phone chip problem in a few years. They already have a Chinese design to make in China for the chips, for the 5G radios, for example. And I can give you a dozen other examples of ways the Chinese are catching up and will catch up. And because the United States went to war, have to catch up and are throwing literal, have literally hundreds of billions of dollars ready to spend to catch up in technology. So getting back to what's going to happen after the American election that can affect Australia or international policy, very little. Because there's a whole lot of Americans who, at least involved with security and with China, agree with what the policy has been. Okay. Well, one of the other aspects to what Trump has been doing is the State Department was deployed to quite actively build an alliance called Clean Networks with with telcos and and countries overseas. It's had quite a lot of success in Europe and some success in Asia. Um, Do you think that a Biden administration would be as aggressive with that international outreach in 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 attempting what is to grow what is already a 40-country coalition? With a little luck, they won't be so aggressive and obnoxious to the point that they insult the Chancellor of Germany and imply she doesn't understand her own security requirements. 
Uh, we've gone way overboard, at least in the style of what we're doing. But I'd be amazed that there was much of a change in substance, at least for two years. Okay. Now, the Democrats have always run big on the principles of net neutrality. Obviously, the Trump administration walked away from that principle during his term, his first term. Um, If Biden becomes the president, is net neutrality likely to return to the policy agenda? No, it's not going to return to the policy agenda. It's going to be done. (laughs) There's no doubt whatsoever. It's in his platform. I know the people who are, I know who's FCC people. I can tell you who are the two most likely chairmen to come up. They're all strong supporters. It's going to be done there. It's unlikely to get through as law, and and the FCC has the authority to move on it, almost for sure. It's probably not going to get through as law because, as I say, the Republicans probably are going to have a one or two vote majority in the Senate. So that probably will hold it off for the next two years. Well, I can't tell you the impact in Australia, but I can tell you the impact in the United States of ending net neutrality under Chairman Pai was negligible. That's I expected that, but that surprised a whole lot of people. And the people, I'm a supporter of net neutrality, and my friends who supported it thought it would be god-awful and a disaster. It's changed almost nothing. There are some small things that have happened. AT&T, which owns home box office, is giving it preference on the wireless network and not charging for the bandwidth, and a few things like that. But by and large, the big phone companies and the cable companies who know what's going on in Washington know that net neutrality doesn't make a really big difference. The traffic stuff and so on doesn't up add to a whole beans here in the United States. It's something. They'd like to collect the toll of everybody coming over the internet, but it's not big dollars. They've been behaving themselves. And they haven't been doing anything outrageous or any of the horrible things that people thought would happen when net neutrality was ended. So when it comes back, it's not going to have much practical effect. It's going to have a lot of emotional effect because people are still, I mean, Michael Copps, who I respect enormously, ex-FCC commissioner, said that ending net neutrality would be the end of the Internet as we know it. I don't think anybody has even noticed a change in the Internet except people in policy looking for very small things at the margins. So net neutrality could be abused. It could definitely be an issue of freedom of press and what's going on. It could definitely cripple people like Netflix competing with the phone companies and so on. But the experience in the U.S. is the telcos decided it wasn't going to be worth the fight and not that much is going to happen one way or the other. On that note, I wanted to ask you about the 5G market in the U.S. From our perceptions over here in Australia, it seems like your 5G market is in incredibly rude health. (laughs) Is that that a correct perception? At the moment, it's not quite true. It will be true in a few months. Let me tell you what's going on and what's starting to happen. The good news is that T-Mobile, one of our three carriers, has 160 megahertz of prime mid-band spectrum. And they're building it out at a furious rate. They say the average speed now is 300 megabits a second download. 
There's nobody on that network. It's a light load. So I talk about it as 100 to 400. And that's about right. By Christmas, one third of the United States will be able to get over 100 megabits from T-Mobile. Early next year, it's going to be half. And by the end of the year, it's going to be a large majority. That's great news. Uh, 5G is working, but it turns, it, it turns out and suddenly has nothing to do with 5G. You can use 4G in that same 160 megahertz, and they're doing some of that. Sprint had already been doing some of that. You get almost the same results. But nobody's bothering with 4G because 5G is the new stuff. So we think of that mid-band 100 to 400 megabits as a 5G thing. Good. That's happening. That's currently in about half of China, a large part of Korea, shortly a third of the United States. The two other things to know about the United States. There is fake 5G, and I'm really clear calling it that at this point. If you take the low, the current spectrum, call it low band, anything 2100 megahertz and below, and split it between 5G and 4G, you can get 5G there. You put 5G and our software on it, how much faster do you think it's going to be than 4G? It has about three times the capacity. Verizon is often getting a real gigabit to people in the high band and averaging over 500 megabits by independent open signal testing. Unfortunately, less than 1% of Verizon network has been upgraded to that high band, and that's the highest rate anywhere in the world right now of the high band. But there's very little of the millimeter wave. The reach is still pretty god-awful. It still has big problems with walls and windows. And nobody needs that spectrum. That's why nobody is building the millimeter wave networks we thought were going to happen, even though they were going to be expensive. It turns out you get so much more capacity in mid-band Nobody knows how to sell it. There's wild overcapacity almost everywhere. I think in Australia, you're now seeing people selling lots of fixed wireless against NBN. And I think some of that's 4G in the United States. It's more 4G than 5G in the fixed wireless. Yeah, what are you it's, seeing it's, it's, over both, there? it's both 4G and 5G, yes. And probably the 4G is more commercially successful because it's more prevalent and, and, and readily available. And that's what you're going to see because opening up, forget the 4G, 5G, and so on. Multiple antennas, carrier aggregation, massive increases in capacity, Verizon's numbers, their cost per bid is coming down 40% per year. And I confirm that with both the financial side and AT&T. And I'm sure Telstra's technology is just as good as Verizon's and AT&T. So you have enormous capacity coming online. Suddenly, everybody wants to sell fixed wireless. They're including lots of video around the world in, in, in the same offer. In, our, in India, you can get Netflix for 2 or $3 more as part of your wireless subscription. I don't know Australia at whether they've cut that kind of deal. Uh, because they have more bandwidth than they can sell. And you can figure out the impact of that, especially in Australia, at least as well as I can. 
how do um, do trends in handsets play into the development of the five G market, both in the states and internationally? Just had the the Apple iPhone twelve releases here, and it's widely perceived here that five G would not take off in Australia until Apple had a device, and now we have one or five, as it so happens. Uh, there's a feeling that this is going to be a five G Christmas. How, how does it feel over there? Uh, it's the same all through the Western world. So there's two things to say. I'm just wrapping up the what I think is the only public worldwide figures on subscribers to 5G broken down by countries around the world. Australia was about 400,000 not long ago. It's probably going to pass a million by the end of the year because they're going to sell so many iPhones, iPhone 12s. And the thing about the iPhone 12 is that it costs the same whether you buy it for 4G or for 5G. There's no premium for 5G. So you're going to have a lot of 5G. And next year, since almost half the phones in Australia are usually iPhones, you're going to wind up by mid-year with the majority of phones being sold in Australia being 5G. Even though there's almost no practical use for 5G. But when the price is the same or not much different, why not go for 5G? Especially because you're going to have it together using mid-band spectrum to get really high speeds there. And the phone companies are going to want to price things to make you do that because they have so much open uh, capacity in the 5G bands that they want you to go into 5G and that opens up the 4G, and you're, I hadn't known, but I, I believe you, that the 4G speeds are going up as people move over to 5G. Now, the second thing that's going to hit Australia and everywhere in the Western world is the price of 5G phones. A decent 5G phone today in China, on the market, I went to JD.com to check this, mostly cost $199 U.S., What's that in Australian dollars these days? I don't know the exchange rate. Okay, that's about 280, 90 Australian dollars. Okay, to $270 US. There are five reputable companies, show me Huawei among them, that are selling six and a half inch multiple camera, decent every other spec, 5G phones for between $199 and $270 retail in China. That's because there are 11 phone makers trying to get in the market, four chip makers, and competition is getting furious. I don't know how soon those low prices are going to get to Australia, but eventually you're going to converge towards those low prices. Your 5G phones are going to cost very little more than your 4G phones. And that will get that, well, I would buy a 5G phone if the price was close to 4G, and I think almost everybody else will. So that's going to happen. The horrible thing is that I can tell you how many subscribers there'll be and how many phones. I haven't found, other than military and surveillance, any interesting new use case or application for 5G at this point. Do anything for the most important mobile application there, video. A four megabit stream of video, which is HD, or even a 15 megabit stream of video, 4K fits fine in 4G on 
your current Australian 4G, I think, I think most of Australian 4G is 50 megabits or more. And the latency makes no difference once the stream starts. So are you really going to notice whether it takes 10 or 15 milliseconds less to get started when you change your channel? Dave, your message in some ways is sort of a little um, paradoxical, if, if, I, if I may use that word. Um, it, on one hand, you're saying the handset prices are coming way down, the volumes are going to ship, 5G is going to be adopted at a very wide scale starting from this Christmas. But there actually isn't really a killer app for it as such. And, and in a sense, you're, you're, you're questioning the investments that are going into it. So, so what, what's the end point for this? Uh, the end point of this is wireless is getting a heck of a lot better at an unbelievable rate when you actually start looking at it. And it has been since at least 2014. Multiple antennas, MIMO and now massive MIMO, carrier aggregation that lets you use much more bandwidth, and a few other things, 256, QAM, and there, there are more technical things coming, have been an amazing increase in capacity. The number out of Verizon, which I've confirmed several ways, including with AT&T, is the cost per bit is going down at 40% per year. That means you're doubling what you can deliver every two years. And that will continue the next few years based just on the stuff that is now getting into the field that's already been proven in other countries, like Massive Nemo, which has been in... 4G in China and Japan since 2017, and roughly triples your capacity in, in the right spectrum bands. So that what you're seeing is that with or without this 5G NR stuff, you're getting much more capacity, which is much more speed or much more bandwidth for fixed wireless. And that's the part that I can tell you. You're not getting much lower latency because the 4G latency has been coming all the way down. And it's very close to the 5G latency. And the things in 5G that could get you to really well, the ultra-reliable low-latency standard isn't there for a couple of years. And even when it is, most people, most networks aren't going to build it unless the military wants it. The only interesting application that's talking to carriers that can pay real money that wants the 5G low latency is military and surveillance. They want to be able to put cameras in Times Square on New Year's Eve and do facial recognition in real time on a million people. And that may require a local network with very low latency. The U.S. Department of Defense has put $600 million into 5G experiments and deployments for the next two years. Uh, I'm not going to make a value judgment on it. I'm going to tell the industry that there's going to be quite a market there. And that's the only market. It should have been virtual reality getting a big boost from 5G low latency down to about 10 milliseconds. Uh, but what I'm seeing in the actual edge networks, that's why I'm giving you Verizon's number of 25 to 40, is they're not getting down to that low by and large. So it's not even virtual reality. You have to get well under 20 milliseconds or some people get nauseous. You really want to get down to 10. Uh, so that was the only application out there that was big other than surveillance 
that was going to really use the gold latency. Well, on that note, Dave, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us at Comms Day Live. Now, if you want to check out Dave's um, analysis, go, go to analysisbranch.com. There's some fantastic content there. Um, Dave really does know his stuff and has a lot of insights that you will not get anywhere else. So please. Well, check why his would anybody out. read me if I said the same thing as everybody else? Indeed, that's right, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. <laughs> well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.